Good morning. Take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Psalm 61. Psalm 61. You can see if you've got your notes in front of you, our key word for the day is rock. Rock. Lead me to the rock. Uh, Probably one of David's more favorite terms. Uh, If you look it up throughout the Psalms, it is throughout. It'll even be in our our text uh, next week as we look at chapter uh, Psalm 62. And so let's stand with us. This is a short, just eight verses. Let's hear from God's word this morning. Psalm 61, to the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name. As I perform my vows day after day. Let's pray. So Lord we come to you today just as we are singing those songs that remind us of the season that is upon us Um, lord we we come in all different ways and shapes and fashions some of us are watching online there's some of us that are traveling as family today and vacations no matter what the case have some that's even in the hospital today and so, Lord, however they see fit to, to come and join us today, we thank you for it. Thank you for them. We pray that this word uh, would be an encouragement to us and to them. Give us what we need now to both give and to receive. Lord, Holy, we pray that the Holy Spirit would, would come and fill us, Lord, so that we could be those faithful people of God that you have called us to be in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So this, the uniqueness of the psalm today, this is another lament psalm, uh, but it offers a couple of unique qualities. This is a psalm from the king's perspective, from a king's perspective. We don't have kings today. Uh, this is a psalm that is what most would consider a messianic psalm, and we'll see that as the psalm unfolds. Um, you, you see the, the psalmist know that this is a prayer. Hear my cry, O God, verse 1, listen to my prayer. As I... As I thought about this and this psalm being from a king's perspective, I was thinking about godly leaders, especially leaders of our country. Uh, I immediately thought of, of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, no matter what you thought of his decisions and those, he was a, he was a godly man. And just listen to this. As the, as the Civil War ensued, it was 1861 in September when he called the nation to a, to a time of prayer and fasting. He was praying for peace and unity in the country. Listen, just listen to this. Listen to what he said. 
He said, where is it is fit and becoming in all people at all times to acknowledge and revere the supreme government of God, to bow in humble submission to his chastisement, to confess and deplore their sins and transgressions in the full conviction that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and to pray with all fervency and contrition for the pardon of their past offenses and for a blessing upon their present and prospective action. And where is when our beloved country once, by the blessing of God, united, prosperous, and happy, is now afflicted with faction and civil war? It is particularly fit for us to recognize the hand of God in this terrible visitation. And in sorrowful remembrance of our own faults and crimes as a nation and as individuals to humble ourselves before Him and to pray for His mercy, to pray that we may be spared further punishment, though we justly deserved, that our arms may be blessed and made effectual for the reestablishment of law and order and peace throughout the wide extent of our country. And that in the inestimable boon of civil and religious liberty, earn under his guidance and blessing by the labors and sufferings of our fathers may be restored in its original excellence. That came from, a, from Abraham Lincoln, one of our leaders. Listen to what he wrote again. He called the country to prayer and fasting again in 1863. The Civil War would go on for another two years. He said, wherein it is a duty of the nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions and humble sorrow, yet with the assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced by the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Man, wouldn't you like to have a president like that? <laughs> that, was his, that was his prayer. So if you think about it, what, what, what was Abraham Lincoln desired more than anything? It was the union of the states. For our states that, were, that was fractured to come back together again, that is the desire of every great leader, a desire for unity and truth. The, the scripture calls that not the union of the states, but the communion of the saints. Here's one aspect of this prayer that we have to really try hard to get because we are rather individualistic in our framework as Americans. When we pray and when God answers, when God sends you help, when He, sent, when he blesses you, when He heals you, and even when He corrects you, He must often send one of His people to do it. No person advances the mission. That's what we just got through talking about. Why are we giving today to, I, to the IMB? Because we can't do this mission of God alone. It is too great. So we lock arms with our brothers and sisters and we do it together. Everybody leads someone. This is not just about the king and his prayer. This is about the king's people. Everybody leads somebody. And you are leading them to somebody. And you are leading them to do something every day. And we normally lead people in one of three ways. To make ourselves their rock. To make ourselves their rock. You know, many singular pastor models see, have a dictator-style pastor. That is his desire. He micromanages. Some of you have worked in jobs with, with a dictator-style 
leader, and they micromanage absolutely everything. They tell you to do something, and then they, they won't let you do it. We make pitiful rocks for people. We are unreliable. We are unstable. When we try to be the rock, we're like, we're like somebody standing on a beach ball. It, it just doesn't work. But sometimes we try to make them the rock of our life. So what does that look like in leadership? It means that I, I, I work really hard for people's approval, for their applause, for their acceptance. I need the recognition. I need it. I must have it, and I expect it. And when I don't get it, I am offended. Or we could do what David did. Just point them to the rock of his life. That's what David wants us to get. That's what he wants his people to get. That's why, remember, this is a songbook. This is for the people that this psalm was written, and it's for us. So think about this. What is your rock? What has been your rock on the worst day of your life? I think even a better question is what is your rock on the best day of your life? Because it is when we experience God's blessings that sometimes we begin to think we did it all by ourselves. Psalms 1831 says, For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. Christ is our rock. And so he is the one we're pointing people to today. Look at your main idea on your outline. Godly leaders must rest in the rock to find refuge, hope, and strength so God's people might endure to the praise of his glory. I just want you to see six things this morning, six realities of David's rock. First, his, his rock is a rock like no other rock. Uh, so great is David's rock that he must be led to the rock. Then he must be helped into or on the rock. Look at verse 2. From the ends of the earth I call to you. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that's higher than I. And so the king is probably away from home. We don't know the situation here in, in this where he was. He could have been at war. This could have been the season when Absalom took the kingdom from him and he was on the run. Uh, it may well be that would make a lot of sense, but we simply don't know. Um, as we have said, David went through the, the gamut, the same things we go through from the time he was a young man to the time he was, he was an old man. Hard times and tribulation didn't escape him as it's not going to escape you. But this king was a humble king. Notice how he puts it. He's contrasting intentionally for God's people. That he is the king is weak. His rock is strong. He says, I know, God, that you're my refuge, but I am too weak to find you. I am too weak to come to you, so will you come to me? Ever heard that language that Christianity is the only religion doesn't say you've got to climb the mountain, but the Christ came down the mountain to us. That's where this language, that's where he's thinking. He's weak. John 6, 63 says this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. It's the work of the Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit, that enables us to find our rest and our weary soul in the rock. He is the shepherd that leads his thirsty sheep to fresh water. That's what David is repeating. He's teaching this through all kinds of metaphors, and here he uses this rock. He can't climb it. He is faint. You see that when my heart, verse 2, second line, when my heart feels faint, that, that could even mean it is in despair. It is, he is weak. He is sickly. He needs some help. He, he feels like he is a drowning man in a situation that he cannot deal with. He says, God, I can't come to you. I, I can't fix this. One commentator offers it this way. Tribulation brings us to God and brings God to us. That's what he's praying for. I need, I need God to come to me now. He's a rock like no other rock. But he begins now to describe it. What is this rock like? What is, he, what is this rock going to do? Secondly, his rock will provide protection. Look at verse 3. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Now you see these words, we've already looked at these words, and we'll see them again come up in the Psalms. Refuge and strong tower. Refuge is, you're thinking a rock, we're thinking of of standing on a rock, and sometimes that's the way it's used. Um, This is more of a sense of when, sort of when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock, it it is almost a refuge is something you flee into. You've got to have somewhere of protection. And so let's put some of these metaphors, some of these key words together. We have been thinking about a fortress with towers. What he is looking at is his fortress is made of solid stone. And so when he enters into this place of safety, it is a solid rock, a place of refuge that he enters into. David has noticed for you have been my refuge. What he is doing is what we have said before. He's pulling back from his experience that God has helped him into the present for help now, for hope. God has helped me in the past. He has been my place of safety. He is all powerful and he's good. When I'm with him, I'm safe. That's where I, God, that's what I need. Psalms 94 22 said, The Lord has become my stronghold. And listen to how he puts it. And my rock, the rock of my refuge. So he is the rock that he enters into, that he flees into and is safe. The strong tower brings to it another aspect of this. So uh, refuge is something you run into. A strong tower is a place of refuge, but it's also the place you launch a good defense. You need a high place. You need to see the enemy coming. We've talked about that before. That's what he's saying. He needs needs not only a place of safety, he needs a place where he can can see what's coming and God is that person and God is that place he must be entered into. He's teaching his people something. This is not just about David. I know as we listen to sermons, we oftentimes say, what can I get that I can use for myself? And And I would just say the reason we have a tendency to simply think about it that way is we are not discipling anyone. Because if you're discipling someone, if you've got a meeting next week with somebody that you're leading to to follow Christ, you're, you're listening to this message for them now and for yourself. That's what David's doing. 
David is a God that's releasing, is teaching his people that in times of hard times, in time of despair, that God is not simply somewhere out there, but he is with his people. But listen, the most precious thing that David repeats, he gets to it here and he repeats it, is number three. In times of trouble, David wants to know that his rock provides his presence. His presence. Look at verse 4. It says, let me dwell in your tent forever. Notice the translators have put an exclamation point here. That's because this is, this is the emphasis. There is even a rest here where this is you, you want to stop. The music stops here for a second. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings what he longs for is the presence of God. You've you got to grab this. For David and his people, the tabernacle was the center of their life. The center of everything in the, in the people of God's life was the place where they corporately gathered for worship. It was the place of God's presence. It was the place of God's divine hospitality and sure protection. He desired it. He longed for it when he wasn't there. He wanted to be back there. I want to dwell in your presence forever. That was not just him. He was saying, God's people, I want you to desire what I desire, to dwell in God's presence forever. And when you're not there, you miss it. This is not just a, a presence of a dry, emotionless, emotional church service this is intimate presence this is this is a presence under the shelter of your wings we talked about that in psalm 57 you remember what we said that presence was like it was like a hen who was gathering her chicks in other words this is the protection of a mother you with me yeah mamas people say women and women you mess with a woman's kids and you're gonna find out something something yeah, I love to watch those, those things when you sneak up on a bear, you know, a bear and her cubs or any kind of anybody and their, and their children. They're going to come at you. There is, it's intimate. It's also fierce. It's fierce when it needs to be. That's the picture. That's why, that's why he longs not only for himself but for his people. He doesn't consider it wrong to ask God, God, I just want to curl up under your arm and rest on your breast doesn't consider that flippant nor irreverent. He considers it what to be, to be a child of God. I remember when we were stuck in the Congo as part of our, our testimony that they gave, one of the things that we couldn't do um, was worship. Now, we couldn't even leave the apartment. And man, week after week after week after week, we just longed and ached to be with the people of God in the, in the house of God, with the worship of God. Listen, that's what David is saying. That's what he's praying for. That's the heart of it this morning. Listen to Psalms 27.4. This was so important for us while we were stuck. Says, says, he says this, One thing I have asked for, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
That's what David desired. He desired it. And listen, he desired God's presence and he desired God's people. We have to put that in our minds. The Jewish people didn't have to. They were a communal people. When they got married, they built a house on top of their parents' house. They didn't move away. They lived together. That was the whole language that the the language that God promised his disciples. I'm going to go away and I'm going to prepare you a house on top of mine and you're going to be with me. When David desired God's presence, he was desiring to be with his people. Flip with me to to Psalms 133. I want you to see both of these together. This is part of the contextualizing God's word. You've got to understand what the people, the original audience reading this, how they were reading it to understand it. These were communal people that lived life together. They had to, couldn't survive without it. Look at Psalms 133. It says, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Listen what it says. From there, the Lord has commanded the blessings, life evermore. Where does the, the God command blessings on life evermore? With his people. With his people. There was a power and a protection and a presence that is with his people that is not there when you're not there. And when you're not with it, you long for it. Just look down two chapters later to Psalms 135. He says, praise the Lord, verse 1. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing praises, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself and Israel as his own possession. God's presence is to be longed for by his people. And so the question this morning, is it a longing or is it merely an option? David longed for it and he longed for his people to long for that too. David's desire was was for God to bring him back to the place of his presence with God's people and now he looks ahead that's messianic as he looks ahead he says provide number four an eternal kingdom look at verse five for you O God have heard my vows you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name just want to look at one part of it. I'm going to come back to verse five in a minute look at the word heritage You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Who are the those? They're the people of God. You see, a kingdom presumes subjects of that kingdom. If you look down at verse 6, you see the generations. There is people. And then verse 7, there is a leader that is enthroned. And he is enthroned forever. David has not only been given a promise of a kingdom, but he's given the responsibility of a people. That's what it means to be a godly leader. You have a a rule and reign that comes with a dominion. 
Can you have people under that your responsibility? God said of these people in Leviticus 20, 26, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and separated you from all peoples, that you should be mine. And then in 2 Samuel 7, 12, God is speaking. He's speaking to David, but he's speaking about Solomon. He says, He, Solomon, is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is the question. This is what David is looking forward to. If nothing and nobody lasts forever... How can your kingdom be eternal? How is this going to work? He's looking forward to something. What is he looking forward to? He's looking forward to Jesus Christ. Who, is, who will sit on the throne. Who does sit on the throne. Who brought his kingdom with him. He is, this is why this is a messianic psalm. And so God has given David a precious heritage. The very people of God. And so he prays. That there would be an eternal kingdom for these people. It's interesting. Look at verse 6 and 7. Verse 6 and 7 is written in the third person. So it's just a really interesting how he shifts here. Verse 6, he says, Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love to watch over him. So David is, generally speaking, this is the now and the not yet of this passage. That's why it's messianic. The, the now is absolutely, he's praying for himself. He's praying for his progeny, his, his descendants would take up the throne and that God would provide a kingdom for them, that he would protect them and guard over them. We're going to see that in a second. But he's also looking forward to a kingdom that would have no end, to a king that would never Leave his throne. And so that's why when the New Testament begins, we in Matthew 1, 17, see, see genealogy from the beginning, from Adam to Abraham, from Abraham to David, from David to Jesus. Turn with me to Acts 2. This is a little lengthy, but it's worth understanding how our apostles read, read the Psalms understood it to this king, this rock today, to be speaking of Jesus. Acts 2, you remember that. Peter's preaching. The apostles were speaking the gospel in everybody's language. You remember? They accused them of being drunk. <laughs> remember Peter said, Acts 2, look at verse 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he had not, was not abandoned to Hades, nor did he see corruption this Jesus God raised up and of whom we are all witnesses being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing for David did not descend into the heavens but he himself 
said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore knows for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you see it? David spoke, David spoke of Jesus. And the new and the apostles understood it. When David prayed for the rock, he's looking forward to Jesus for a king, for a rock that would have no end, that would bring his refuge and his strength to future generations. But they must rest in this rock. Notice number five. His rock provides faithfulness and goodness. Verse seven. says, may he be enthroned forever before God. Notice a couple of words here. Appoint. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. God sovereignly appoints a guard for the people of God, for the king. Notice the guard is steadfast love. This is, as we've been talking about over and over and over again, the covenant love of God. This is not a mushy-gushy feeling. This is, this is a chosen love, a love that you set on somebody and you never remove it. It's a faithful love. It's, it's an unfailable love. It has with it unfailable goodness and kindness and benevolence. Psalms 138 verse 2 connects with the temple. It says, I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Your name and your word. That's what the Lord protects. And so, here's his conclusion in Psalms 138 verse 8. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. What is the work of his hands? We are. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2. Guard us in steadfast love and guard us in faithfulness. We've talked about this before. Faithfulness is that thing that every relationship depends on. It is a trustworthiness. It provides stable and peace and permanence. Psalm 16, 8, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, right? Get the analogy. Because he is at, he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. If he is not at my right hand, what he's, remember Psalms, I am weak. I can't do it. He's got to be here. He's got to be beside of me. This is, the, this is this prayer of lament. I need you, God. I need you now. I can't come to the, into your presence right now. I can't get to the temple. I need you to come to me. And I long to be there again. He's, he, he's teaching this to God's people who will go through exponential suffering in the years to come. Five. So we see what happens here again through this lament. Now, this is if you back up and think about all of these, you look at all of your outlines over the last half a dozen messages, you're going to see a pattern here that as you do good lament in times of suffering and tribulation, what comes is confidence and what comes is worship. His rock requires worship. And worship for David is connected to obedience. 
Go back up to verse 5. He said, you have heard my vows. You see, worship is more about obedience than it is some kind of a feeling or emotion. When God stirs someone, when God puts his hand on someone, when God chooses someone, you can count on obedience being the first thing that bubbles over and out. It is our worship, our life lived for him in obedience. He says, I'm going to, I pay my vows. That's, he's speaking when he talks about that of, of the daily sacrifices, some of which that were forgiveness and some of which were about gratefulness and devotion. That's why though Christ fulfilled all the, all, all the sacrifices that had to do with sin and atonement, we still come to work till Sundays and we still offer an offering. Our offering is gratefulness, it's generosity. That's what he's saying. David is away from home. But oh, how he longs to be with the people of God. To be able to sacrifice and to worship the Lord with him. David is no reluctant worshiper. He longs to worship. And he longs to worship with his people. He noticed that it also, worship requires fear. Still in verse 5. It says, for you... Oh God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of what? Of those who fear your name. Not everybody in the camp is in the family. Those who are the heritage are those who fear your name. Fear involves two things. This all-filled reverence and willing obedience. Why do I go this way and not that way? What keeps me from not going that way is not simply rings on our hands and commitments that we make which are important. It is ultimately the fear of God. I dare not go that way. I dare not go that way. I ain't going that way. I've seen where that way leads. God is too holy and He is too good and He has brought me too far to go that way again. I'm not going that way. I'm going this way. I know what it costs me. I'm going anyway. That's the fear of the Lord. And you are not worshiping God without it. You are blaspheming His name. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And it is this worship that He accepts. Not half-hearted worship from people who, who can treat worship as an option. It's not an option for the people who fear Him. It is their life. Does this seem like it's optional for David? David longs for it. Even when he's away from home, he's worshiping. But oh, how he longs to be in the place of God, and with the people of God in his worship. This brings him to praise. Notice, again, David's situation, whatever it is, we don't know what it is this time, hasn't changed. Yet his perspective has changed. Verse 8. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Those who fear the Lord do two things. They worship him, they obey him. They worship him and they obey him. David knows I belong to this rock. We know that too. We talked about that last week, didn't we? We belong to Jesus Christ. David is away from home. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about being able to come back to the place, to the tabernacle with God's people where he can worship, where he can offer sacrifices of praise. 
And he is not only emboldened for the future, he is enraptured in praise right in the midst of his situation. No matter where that is, right in the muck of the mud of his life, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of all the unknown, you can be enraptured in this fact, we are his. And there's nothing that can change that. Turn with me to John 17. John 17, and and stay in John 17. I keep this. This is from Honduras. Every time I flip around, it opens up. This reminds me to pray for those, those brothers over there that are doing the work of God over there now. They're part of our family, just like we are. John 17. Look at verse... Nine. This is Jesus praying for us. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I was thinking about what did it mean to be God's. You have to, I have to go back to the fatherhood of God. And when I go to the fatherhood of God, I end up going back to one of my favorite books, Knowing God. Let me just read this quote. I've read it before, and I'll read it again. Quote, You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught and everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. He's our Father. We belong to Him. And that, brothers and sisters, will bring you to worship. It doesn't matter your situation. Amen? Romans 8, 17 says this. This is true. We are fellow heirs with Christ. But we must suffer in this life. That's what the text says. In order that we will be glorified with Him. There is a promise. We are His. But this life is hard. But don't worry. I am with you. So what? Am I seeking what God longs to provide? Are you seeking what God longs to provide? David is waiting. He is longing. We're talking about waiting next week as we set ourselves up for Christmas. The world was waiting. David's waiting. But only the rock can provide. Stay, if you're still in John 17, stay there. Look down at verse 20. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as the Father are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. We long to be with Christ, but we must long to be with each other. This is what Christ paid for. This is what He is doing. Our church has become missionless. We become inward focused and die when we don't understand whose we belong to and that we not only belong to Him, we belong to each other. There's no I in that verse. There is only them and they and these. And listen, this is a bold statement. The modern idea of Christian individualism is the antichrist gospel of our day. The modern idea that Jesus and me are okay, that all I need is Jesus and me, that I love Jesus and I hate the church, that I got Jesus and I don't need anybody else. It is the Antichrist gospel. It is not the gospel. It has been stripped of its truth so that somebody feels good enough to think they're not going to hell. It robs God of his glory and it robs us By stripping away the very means God has given to provide His love and tender care. Because when He wants to provide His love and tender care, He's sending one of you to me. And He's sending me to you. That's how He works. Almost always, God works through His people. When God offers you a rock, here's what He's offering you. Study your your word and see if this is not true. When God offers you the rock, here's what he's offering you. A sovereign king and his eternal kingdom. A sovereign king and his eternal kingdom. That's why you can't have Jesus as your Savior and not your Lord. Because when he offers you something, he's offering you the king. And the king comes with a rule and reign, which is his kingdom. And the kingdom presumes subjects. Kingdom has a king, a rule and reign, and it has subjects. What else? When he offers you the rock in Scripture, here's what he's offering you. A loving father and his adopted family. Nobody gets in without adoption in God's, in God's economy. Everybody's adopted. That's the only way you're in the family of God. You're not Jewish nor holy nor divine. That's, but he comes with him. You just can't take the father and say, no, thank you, I'll leave his family out. It's not the way it works. You reject his family. You've rejected God. Mm. He comes with a perfect master and his willing slaves. He comes with a good shepherd (laughs) and his needy sheep. Yeah. Yeah, we're needy. Family a little bit jacked up. We're not there yet. That's what sanctification is all about. Glorification is promised. Psalms 95, verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Never forget, never forget, brothers and sisters, that we are often the answers to other people's prayers that they're praying for. Help, comfort, can't pay my power bill, don't know what I'm going to do. Parents have walked away. We 
are the answer to their prayers. When God answers their prayers, he sends you. So three power-preserving pursuits as we leave this morning. The prayer of the saints. I am living proof that God uses your prayers to hold me together. And I hold you together some days. And you'll need us to hold you together one day. You might think you have it all together right day, but you're just one doctor's a visit away from realizing that's baloney. We need each other as we need Christ. When Christ gives you himself, he gives you a family. The prayer of the saints is his economy of how it works. God is sovereign, but he is sovereign over your prayers. When you pray, God changes things. He does things. The prayer of the saints, the hospitality of the saints. The key to exponential growth in the church of Jesus Christ is when you begin to leverage your sacred places and quit being selfish with them. To show believers and unbelievers the steadfast love of Jesus Christ looks like a person. It looks like a love. It looks like coffee. It looks like supper. It looks like fishing. It looks like things that you do well and that you can leverage for his kingdom's sake. People need to see it, the hospitality and what we've been talking about, the mission of the saints. We partner together with the IMB, with the North American Mission Board, with Pillar that we just joined, and with other brothers and sisters to go to all peoples. This is the work we're here to do. And as we wait, we work, and we work together. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word, that your word is true, that your word is precious. Thank you that you not only saved us to leave us alone, Lord, you could have saved us and say you just got to be by yourself until one day, but instead, Lord, as we wait for that day, when you bring us home to be with you, you give us this precious family to live life with. We thank you for it. Oh, God, we've... I feel as Abraham Lincoln, oh, how we need to repent. For we have neglected that which is the most precious in our life. Our families and our gospel and our Lord and each other. And so, Lord, we thank you for the gospel that brings us peace. The gospel that brings us together. The gospel that stirs us up to love and good works. For your glory. And so, Lord, we, we come now to offer it. We don't come here as perfect people. We come here as covered people. Come to you as people that have come to your Son, and He has covered us with His righteousness. We are not righteous, God. You know that. But we are righteous because of our faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we, we long to come now to the tables to remember and to celebrate that we belong to you and we belong to each other. And all that was provided through the blood of your son. And so, Lord, that is precious. We come here to offer our offerings. And so, Lord, we pray that we would take it, we would use it. Lord, we have, uh, we have needs here. We have things that we believe that you've called us to do. And we can't do it without you. And yet we realize when we pray to you, 
you oftentimes send it through your people and through your instruments. And so, Lord, we pray. Here we are, Lord. Send us. Use us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.